Your Chinese blockbuster podcast. I'm Noah. I'm Reza. I'm Andrew, and this is your monthly bonus episode. If you like our show and can afford it, we would really appreciate it if you would contribute to our Patreon at patreoncom studio. This week we're talking about My People, My Country, released in 2019. You don't have to watch it, but if you want to see it unspoiled, maybe listen to the show afterwards. We're talking about the movie with Michael Berry, translator of Wuhan Diary, Dispatches from a Quarantine City, and director of the UCLA Center for Chinese Studies. Here's our conversation about the movie. When did you first hear about this movie? Oh, I probably not long after it was released. I saw trailers of it. Yeah, just early, early on. You know, I, I tend, tend to keep up with latest activities happening in the Chinese box office. And yeah, I had, I had heard about it probably short after its release. Were, uh, were you in China at the time when the movie came out? No, I was. I'm mostly based here in Los Angeles, so okay. I was. What were you hearing at that time? I mean, obviously, it was climbing the box office, and that was kind of interesting for an anthology movie. But... Yeah, you know, it wasn't surprising for me because there's been a history over the last, well. We can historicize it by going back several decades, but there's always been a tradition of these so-called patriotic movies or mm-hmm. some Chinese, sometimes you call them Zhu Xuan Lu, the kind of main melody films. Some might in the West label them as propagandistic films, have performed very well in Chinese uh, in the Chinese film industry over the course of many, many decades. What's interesting is that over the last, I'm going to say, decade or so, there's been an increasing thrust to use commercial film modalities to combine with these more propagandistic, you know, war films or patriotic films. And so we're seeing kind of emergence of propaganda and commercial cinema. And it's a lot of the same directors who were bringing those commercial films working on this anthology it seems like like detective chinatown is represented here the the lost in films yeah there i mean they've got uh you know guan hu and shu zhang who did the um uh you know one of china's most popular kind of comedic actors and directors ning hao did the whole crazy stone crazy racer mm-hmm. series which was wildly popular within china crazy. But what's so wild about this one is that it actually got big enough to crack into the like the top ten grossing films in China domestically ever. I mean, th- and it came on the back of Fan Bingbing and movie industry kind of moving away from being able to finance big movies. And it, it's I found it odd that this was the movie that brought China back to the theaters. Well, you know, I I think if you look at the history of some of the big box office grocers in China over the last say decade or so, there's a lot of weird ones. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of films that are kind of, I mean, I remember when mermaid, Stephen Chow's mermaid. (laughs) Yeah. I was doing a little consulting with a a company here based in Hollywood. And one, one of these heads of a studio sat down with me and just said, 
can you explain to me, like, why do people watch this? <laughs> made this much money, it just doesn't make sense. It's like, who who would watch a film like this? <laughs> and, and, I mean, part of that was, those comments just show such a disconnect between Hollywood aesthetics and Hollywood expectations and those of the local Chinese film industry. But there's been a lot of films that have performed outrageously well um, and if you look at the quality inherently of the film, you wouldn't necessarily expect that. And I think part of the reason to account for this is the Chinese film industry has really been on steroids this la the last 15 to 20 years. The number of screens growing, going up every day, the number of uh, the box office kind of uh, exponential growth of the Chinese box office creates a situation where they need content. They need films to program and get into these theaters. And when you have that need, sometimes it, it's almost incidental what film happens to be put out at a certain time. You just have a massive audience who have a lot of disposable income. They want entertainment. And it's led to a lot of films and directors rising up and having being hugely successful when you wouldn't necessarily expect it. And so some of the success of these films financially, I think, is just really uh, not to take away from the inherent quality of certain films or maybe a little bit but <laughs> but it's but but it's, it's deeply tied to just the exponential growth of the industry itself if you throw anything almost anything out there um i mean some will hit some will miss but the hits aren't always what we would expect totally i mean operation red sea i'm still surprised <laughs> that it's so well for something so well, well, gi joey well, uh, I mean, Operation Red Sea and this film, one of the, the big X factor here is that they're patriotic films. And yeah. these types of patriotic films perform very differently in the Chinese market than they do, say, in the American market or European markets. Not just most of the, these films that made, you know, $400 million, $600 million in China have done minuscule business internationally. Incredible market potential within China. But once they leave the boundaries of the Chinese state, they, a lot of them kind of fall on their face. And a part of that is different sense of aesthetics, but a big part is the different political sensibility that these films are conveying, which is just not palpable for a lot of American or other Western audiences. It's strange though, because it feels like with what we've seen, there's a sort of combination where you have a lot of films like this one, which are very much geared towards almost exclusively a domestic Chinese audience. But you also see that there is a sort of push forward that the Chinese film industry does have ambitions towards, you know, towards expanding beyond the domestic box office there. We talked to uh, years ago, uh, like over a year ago now, we talked to an actor who was part of something that was supposed to be like the Chinese competitor to Avatar, which was supposed to be this giant underwater uh cgi epic that uh, i mean that one fell through but with some of the movies that we've been seeing that are coming from china as blockbusters i i think that there is a sort of two sides to the industry where some of them really are playing to this domestic box office while others are trying to introduce china to the rest of the world well i mean wujing's doing a movie with chris pratt I, that's just a thing i saw recently <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> just a little more topical yeah, I mean, and there was definitely a trend around, we're gonna, I'm going to say 2012, 2013, 2014, you know, maybe in the 2016, 17, there was a very strong trend of pairing 
Chinese A-list stars with Hollywood A-list mm-hmm. stars. You had Feng Shao Gong uh, doing Back to 1942 with Adrian Brody and Tim Robbins. You had Zhang Yimou doing you know, Flowers of War with Christian Bale. Uh, of course, Johnny Mo did several others. He also did the, you know, the Great Wall, which, which was the big flop. Um, but you had a whole series of these films attempting to do these kind of transnational pairings. I mean, Dan Ang made a film with Kevin Spacey uh, before his falling. Um, but there had been this thrust to try to. I like to I like to describe it as cracking the code in basically finding the film which will hit into a formula that will simultaneously appeal to both Chinese and Western audiences. And I think for a long period of time, the Chinese film producers on that side really thought the way forward was having a great Chinese director, a great Chinese story, and putting in some A-list American stars, then we can lock up both markets, the international global market and the Chinese market. Unfortunately, most of those films did pretty well in China, some not so well, but most did pretty well, and then they all fell on their face globally. And so I think there was a period where people started to rethink things. Um, part of that policy wasn't just market-driven. There was also a political policy about sending Chinese culture out into the world, which Xi Jinping was directly supporting. And there was a big uh, kind of wave of support from you know the top down for making these kind of films and sending. Basically, it was initiative to use Chinese cinema as a tool of soft power to you know, win hearts and minds all over the world. What's What's been oh. happening the last couple of years, you know, with the trade war and with the all kinds of investment being pulled out of Hollywood, I think there's also a, a, a kind of a deep realization now from a lot of Chinese film producers that we don't need America. We don't need other markets because China is so massive and has such an incredible population, but also group of middle class people with who are getting increasingly wealthy they have money to spend and you can make a film like my people my country and make over 400 million dollars at the chinese box office alone with nobody else even more startling are films like say wolf warrior 2 where you know that gate came pretty close to joining the billion dollar club and Mm -hmm. as you know for hollywood these billion dollar films they need a global market they need china they need europe to get to that level they just can't do it in america alone and that also means that those films have incredibly bloated budgets so you know things like captain america civil war you know avengers or transformers and all these spectacle films these are films with budgets of you know 200 to 400 million dollars sometimes just the budget and they need those global markets to make the money back. A film like Wolf Warrior 2 can make a, you know, I don't know what the budget is, maybe $50 million, something somewhere well, in that they range. They also had like a quite a bit of infrastructural support from the PLA in terms of providing ships and tanks and stuff. Certainly. And and then a film like that get can do the same business as like an Avengers movie, but in the Chinese market alone. And so that should strike fear in the hearts <laughs> of Americans. Hollywood producers, because how do you compete with that? Um, they they can make a film on a fraction of the budget, like you know, my people, my country, like Wolf Warrior Two, and only worry about their own one domestic market. And business is very, very good and very lucrative. And so that is just one part of the playing field that is going to be increasingly challenging for Hollywood moving forward. Let alone COVID and other challenges. I mean, while that's like a successful model domestically, and, you know, it's shown to be time and again, 
they do fail on the front of Chinese film as soft power, right? And I guess, are you aware of how they address that now, you know, in the face of the trade war, like you said, and kind of like decoupling from Hollywood? It had been a goal, you know, using film as soft power and getting our Chinese images out there and getting more Chinese uh, actors and visible roles in Hollywood films. I think there's a lot of rethinking going on in China these last year or so, and that the shift in China U.S. relations has been so quick, so radical, and so unpredictable, especially under Donald Trump's presidency. I think uh, on the China side, they've been trying to figure out how to uh, reprogram their cultural industry in terms of uh, rising up to this. And you've seen things like in the publishing industry in China, a lot of American authors are not being able to be published. I would call it almost a soft ban on American authors. Film industry, we haven't seen a reduction in the quota system, but if things continue to sour, I wouldn't be surprised if we also see more limitations on American films being uh, getting access. And even if there's no formal limitation of American films in China, you are going to start seeing uh, blowback on the part of nationalist youths who just they don't want to watch an American film when America is hurting them economically and taking all these punitive actions. And so there will be, if not a formal boycott, but I could see you know, kind of a soft boycott on the part of just audience, patriotic audience members who would rather support their own local films rather than international films, especially from a country that's now being framed as an enemy. You watched My People, My Country fairly recently, or rewatched it as well? Yes. Let, let's... If you're down, let's dive into maybe the specific stories. The first one is, of course, the Eve, which I thought was quite good. It, like in, in a in a very stirring way, I think it worked really well. Dude, I, like I said, I wish I could have held that flagpole up myself. Like I would have <laughs> loved to watch this in my local Regal Cinema. <laughs> there are some delightful moments in the film, and some of the vignettes I think are. are really well done but i've seen my share of these types of main melody films over yeah. the years, and they, they 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 don't pull my heartstrings like they do i think mainstream maybe uh chinese audiences that they're designed for you know what, what one thing that i think about when i watch these films is there there's something about the over-the-top patriotism and, you know, the flag waving all the, I mean, the first shot of the film is this close-up of the red flag, you know, fluttering in the wind. The whole film in some ways is almost a love story to the Chinese flag, right? And you have repeated close-ups and slow-mo shots and um, even stories about, you know, some of the vignettes are about raising the flag. and new Two of them. <laughs> right? Not even just one, but... Yes, yes. And so, I mean, years ago, I, I helped... Uh, write a screenplay for a, a Chinese documentary film. When I looked at some of the rough cuts, they had actually put CG images of flags into some <laughs> of the shots. And when they just jump out, like, oh my God, you know. And so sometimes the flag waving can be overdone. But, but what I was trying to get at is sometimes I do kind of self-reflect on, as a foreign audience, right, we have come from such a different cultural have such different cultural baggage and such a different perspective when we look at these films that have very overpowering patriotic messages that I think there's an in, almost an internal 
thrust to look away from them or to be pushed away from them or to be disgusted by them for some audiences. But I think we should also turn that on ourselves and ask ourselves, for instance, you watch a film like Captain America, right? And I grew up in a generation reading Marvel comics. And so you're inundated with those images from youth. I was, as a kid, and even as a young adult, I don't think I was ever overtly disgusted by what that represented, right? But if I was from growing up in Iran or growing up in Pakistan or growing up in China or another country, I mean, you can't get more propagandistic than a superhero with the U.S. flag emblazoned on his body and his shield. And I mean, it's it got an A branded on his head, you know, it, I think it's, it's instructive for us when we do have those moments of kind of critique at the like Wolf Warrior 2, a lot of people in the West, strongly critique Wolf Warrior 2 for its overly bombastic patriotism and the flag waving and all of that. But I think we also need to reflect on our own culture and, you know, look at films like Independence Day, look at Rambo, look at, you know, the whole history of American cinema. And if we're able to step out of our own shoes and you see that there's also very similar propagandistic thrusts taking place in mainstream Hollywood films, and hopefully that creates some kind of distance and reflection about how they render these images in in a film like My People, My Country. I do think it's worth saying, though, that My People, My Country, at least as I perceived it, is a much more emotionally effective main melody film than, say, 1911 or even Wolf Warrior 2, which in its own action ways is very stirring. But I, because it builds on these individual stories, and especially I thought the, um, the Inner Mongolia story was you know it it was a aesthetically beautiful but b i you know i I thought that the the journey of these characters and the sort of archetype of the wise old communist is it was i think emotionally very effective in a way that a captain america is not to me yeah Uh, i mean that that vignette that you mentioned i mean i think that was one of my favorites as well and you had you know, incredible acting, I think the, and, and we shouldn't forget that a film like this, they're drawing from the A-list of China's film industry. So they've got really the best storytellers, the best screenwriters, the best directors. And also there's enough variation in terms of theme and kind of genre in between the vignettes that they keep the audience's attention and kind of mix it up again. But you also, I also look at a film like My People, My Country as part of I think I mentioned earlier, this this lineage of the evolution of the main melody film. Mm-hmm. Chinese film industry had been trying to perfect or crack the code between a glo- what a global Chinese film might look like. Simultaneously, they've been trying to perfect what a propaganda film should look like and how it can be reimagined as a lean, mean, commercial beast in this new era. And you, I mean, I've seen over the course of my career following these kinds of films, the radical transformation of this type of genre. Say through the 80s into the early 90s, you had these propaganda films where for a while people were kind of done with it. And so you had work units, Dan Wei, they would, uh, they would, you know, send out free tickets to all the people in the work unit and encourage them to see, you know, the new movie about Lei Feng, the soldier hero, or um, whatever other propaganda film was the flavor of the day and people would sometimes go 
sometimes the theaters would be more than half empty because they just throw the tickets away or give them away. But there was a great disinterest in these films for a while. A few years ago, there had even been, it was a headline news that there was a new Leifeng propaganda film that basically nobody went to. It was just empty theaters all over. And they released it on Leifeng holiday day. Nobody went to see it. But gradually, you start seeing an evolution of this. And so I think one of the big moments of change was when you have a founding of the Republic. And this is around 2010, I guess. There were two films. The Yeah, th these were films. One of them is uh, chronicles the founding of China in 1949. And then there's another one about the founding of the uh, party, the Chinese Communist Party. And those did something different. They started casting A-list Chinese actors in them. And not just one or two, but it was just a who's who of the Chinese film industry. So you had cameo appearances by dozens and dozens of, I mean, the entire film industry basically came out to support this. And I think it was looked at as almost a political gesture that if you wanted to be politically correct, if you wanted to be on the right side of history and you're an actor, yeah, you donate your time and you make this gesture it will it's good for building relations for future films and it's good to be get in with the party and so you had everyone all the main players of the chinese film industry taking a role in these two films and it, they were hugely successful and that also started to shift the model because what it was doing was combining the star system model right where you you know brad pitt or use these a-list celebrities to sell a film that's something that really hadn't been used in the previous iteration of these main melody films and you start using that and now you're not only marrying and, and then and then if you move ahead a couple of years say wolf warrior then you're not only doing that you've got the stars you've got the propaganda but you've also then you borrow and internalize western genre commercial genres so in this case rambo Sylvester stallone arnold schwarzenegger style 80s action films and you work that into the formula and here, I think you see a further kind of iteration of that, where you have all the stars, all the directors. Um, and it's, again, it's a kind of a who's who of what's popular. And it's also slightly geared to towards a younger generation. So, mm -hmm. you know, directors like Ning Hao and Xu Zheng, uh, Zhang Yibai, these are all directors that have great appeal to young audiences in China. And so they're very consciously trying to formulate something that's going to hit all the right patriotic messages and indoctrinate those kind of thoughts and ideas in the right way, but also use very savvy commercial filmmaking style to convey those messages. And I think that's why this one, and just like the filmmakers feel that participating in a film like this is almost a patriotic obligation, audiences also go to these films with that same kind of thought that by going, it's a patriotic gesture. You're loving your country by seeing a film like this, using your money in the box office to love your country. And so that also kind of goes into the formula that makes a film like this so successful. It's interesting, though, because there are, I think, some sort of throwbacks in this movie. Like the, the final story segment feels like, I don't know, the sort of movie that would have been made 10, 12 years ago where they just cast a soldier and they're like... All right, go fly this plane. <laughs> Whereas I think some of them are much more sophisticated than that. Yeah, I mean there, there there's not in a there's not great consistency between all the stories, but there is a strong sense of nostalgia throughout all the stories. And I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but I think it does play on the fact that they're looking at 
marketing this to a multi-generational audience and by having such a broad historical canvas, right, going from 49 all the way up until the present day, you're also directly playing into the personal memories of audience members, and that's gonna be different for each person. So older generation audiences are gonna remember all of these events from 49, the flag, to you know uh, the 50s, the segment about the first successful attempt to test a nuclear bomb in China, um, all the way to the more recent ones. And then you have younger audiences who, you know, might, might only remember the last, or you know, the, the the last segment or the last two segments. But by doing that, they're also kind of playing with this communal memory of of audience members in China by hitting on, you know, and they're all patriotic moments, you know, about sporting events, about the you know, bomb, the space race, or you know, and the um, Shenzhou, Shenzhou. Um, also, moments of like engineered spectacle, I think, rather than like patriotic moments, saving a disaster area or something or defeating um, an epidemic, more so yeah. like moments where it is, we we have to stage this spectacle to get it correct on TV and for the nation to see, which I thought was an interesting focus. Well, I mean, I was kind of shocked at how much I liked the pro-nuclear narrative right like it's kind of hard to do in 2020 to like uh propose oh nuclear bombs are good but at the end of the day you know like the again the flags waving in the streets and the just personalizing it down to the the oppenheimer level of but he actually very much not oppenheimer yeah very much looking up at it and being like i am a god (laughs) yeah but like it's not i am a god it's i am a god too right Right. (laughs) which is a completely different narrative and then that sells even though you know it's nuclear fucking war yeah i mean that that segment i think was fairly deftly handled from a cinematic perspective i mean just the story that they rendered about this scientist who needed to go undercover, right, and cut ties from his loved ones for several years. And and a lot of these stories, what they do very successfully is they merge the individual story with that of the collective or the nation. And they show how these two kind of reflect one another. And that, and the, but ultimately, almost in all cases, the end result for the protagonist is individual sacrifice mm-hmm. for the nation, right? And you see that in that segment with the nuclear tests that the gentleman who kind of went undercover to work on the nuclear project. And that's a core socialist value that goes all the way back, you know, to the Yan'an days of Mao in the 1940s. And, and if you look at socialist realist cinema under Mao from, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, that was a theme. I mean, Red Detachment of Women, the, um, you know, the, the great socialist classic, it's all about suppressing your individual desires your, the things you want and suppressing that for what's better for the collective. Lei Feng, same thing, suppressing that need for glory and to be a soldier on the front lines and realizing I can be a soldier of the everyday. I can help an old lady cross the street and that's just as valid as working on a nuclear bomb or whatever, you know. Or big... holding up an antenna for your village, right? Which was really it's... deftly handled. Holding up an their... antenna for your village while your crush walks away. And then he's Wu Jing. And then he's yeah. Wu Jing. What a moment. Freeze frame <laughs> well, on the paddle. <laughs> Zoom out on Wu Jing. Maybe the, 
And, and those are moments where I think audiences in China are just going to eat that up. You know, when yeah. Wu Jing appears as the adult manifestation of this patriotic boy who held up the antenna. I mean, those are the moments that make a film like this pop, right, for, for a local Chinese audience. Yeah, but but I think when you boil it all down, the ideological messages are the same messages that you see in films in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and they're just, and they're being but repackaged in a much more sophisticated way with now you know the A list of the Chinese film industry and able now to make real money. That and when that's the one of the real ironies is that all of these lofty idealistic socialist values are benefiting a ruthlessly capitalistic film industry that's, you know, trying to get rich and make all these filmmakers rich. I mean, I don't know if you saw the list of co-producers at the beginning of the film and the list of production companies involved. Back in the good old socialist days, you'd make a film and they'd say produced by Xi'an Film Studio or Beijing Film Studio, you know, Changchun Film, one studio, one producer, maybe two. And this one, there must be 50 production companies involved. I mean, and, and the financial, you know, uh, the complex financial structure behind the scenes, all of that speaks to basically a capitalist system where they're trying to use those patriotic, lofty ideals and the sense of you're watching a film, you're contributing to the country, but you're also contributing to this ruthless capitalist system. And so there's some interesting kind of tension there. Right. Yeah, on the ideological front, I really felt that the Hong Kong vignette really fell short. It felt like that could have been so good, but it, it felt like the director was just kind of taking punches at the British, at the local Hong Kong, and I don't know, did, how did that land for you guys? It, it felt very scattered, and as far as I know, the director of that one is primarily a rom-com director previous to working on this film. So maybe she just wasn't quite up to the, the great national epic type of thing. But yeah, it, it felt very scattered. And I, I think it's it, there seemed to be moments in this movie of really nice coordination, like we were saying before with the theme of personal sacrifice going straight from the atomic segment to the kid holding the antenna. That reinforced it in a nice way, but going from the automatic flag raising and the sort of great engineering achievements that the revolution was bringing to the guy manually practicing raising the flag it, it seemed like a failure of coordination in a, an anthology film yeah i i'd agree with that that the the, the stakes just didn't you didn't feel the weight yeah. of the stakes in the shri Lu film about uh handover right that you know for for that maybe internally you know being off by 12 seconds was of national consequence and but i think for most audiences it's like well you know it's, it's, it's like, uh, like nobody wears a watch i've never met a watchmaker <laughs> you know and the other i mean for me the bigger failure of it which is inevitable given the political bent of yeah. this film is that the handover was a political moment fraught with all kinds of 
different emotions among Hong Kong people. Mm -hmm. Yes, a lot of them did celebrate it, anticipate it, and looked at it as a wonderful liberation, a celebratory moment for Hong Kong's history. There were also a lot of people who dreaded that moment and were, and who there was an immigration wave out of Hong Kong, people going to Canada and the US and Australia and worried that there would be another June 4th like event in 1997. And of course, and I think understanding what happened in 97, both sides of that story are crucial. You need to understand, yes, there, there was celebration and patriotism and hope. And there was also a lot of fear and um, and, and you've seen the, the fear side, you see some of the manifestation of that over the last two years, and what's been playing out in Hong Kong and where that eventually took us. But leaving out one side of the story, or many sides of the story, I don't think it, it does a disservice to history and it does a disservice to how audiences understand that history. And instead you get just a really hegemonic, overbearing, one-sided vision, and not just of that segment, but all the segments, I think. And that's what's lacking in a lot of these main melody films is nuance, complexity, the contradictions. This is, there's only one story that can be told and it's this version. It's the correct, politically correct version. And for me, the biggest challenge of these types of films is given the political system with which these filmmakers are working, they don't really have much choice. It's very hard to inject more nuance and contradictions and challenges and layering. Instead, you're kind of forced to tell the correct story. But I think as we all know, there's multiple ways and perspectives that these stories could be told, and many of them aren't as pretty and lofty and inspiring as what you're, you're getting here. But even and on wouldn't the, sell, right? I mean, even it's like the, it's not the lack of nuance in China film. I mean, how much nuance do we see in big Marvel production? You know, that's not what's going to sell at the end of the day. So I think at, to a certain degree, maybe it's unfair to this uh, blockbuster for not showing nuance, but it's shown to be historically the correct formula. But uh, I so I would disagree with that a little bit. I think in terms of in terms of the correct formula for a patriotic film, not to say that it, like that they're not limited by this political correctness. But I think if you're trying to make a patriotic film, especially about the handover of Hong Kong, I think about something like Police Story 3, right? Which has this mainland Chinese cop and Jackie Chan Hong Kong cop working together. But that story both incorporates that nuance and more effectively than this story makes that handover feel like a special moment where at the end of that film, they're like, Yes, we're going to share this money we've recovered when we become one China. And so I think by incorporating that nuance, by having that sort of those contrasts throughout, it comes out to this more powerful patriotic synthesis at the end of that film versus, I think, like you were saying, this segment fails to do that. And by failing to do that, I think it also fails to convey its patriotic message effectively. Yeah, I would agree with that actually. Yeah, it's I just didn't like this show. I mean, it's like <laughs> it being the hinge, it being the fourth vignette kind of, you know, like I was so happy that the Hello Beijing kind of instantly was happy and like bright and you know, obviously it's the opening ceremony, but the Hong Kong one was it ended by the wife who was the cop changing the badge, right? Like that was just so oh man, just right in your face. Yeah, strange moment to get with a Hong Kong cop. Yeah. No, but I would agree with you that the Hello Beijing, the Ning Hao segment was quite delightful. And yeah. the male protagonist, Guo Yo, you know, he's 
got his start, you know, with Feng Xiaogang in the 80s with all these New Year's comedies. And for a while, he turned away from that and took on, tried to take on more serious roles and expand his palette. And here you really got a taste of classic Guyo kind of comedy at his best. And it was very almost, uh, I don't know, reassuring and uh, felt like a triumph to see him back in that form. And he seemed to really enjoy the role as well. So yeah, that was that was a fun a fun kind of lighthearted take on on that segment. Yeah, I had a good time with that one to an extent, although it felt tonally so very different from what preceded it. I was sort of um, whiplashed a little bit. <laughs> I... I liked it. It just felt good, right? And um, the opening ceremony, at least for us, is something that's so fresh. It's so fresh in my memory, right? Like, that was a stunning thing to watch on TV, like, in 2008. And I'm a little sad that that bit of it wasn't emphasized as much in the movie, like, the actual spectacle of it. In the way that the spectacle of, like, they were able to frame the spectacle of uh, automatic flag raising and wasn't able to do that with, like, the actual biggest spectacle that I can remember in my life. It, it was good. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because they didn't like at the end of the flag raising, they cut to false footage from that time and some real footage from that time. The volleyball victory, they show it in color at the end of that segment. And obviously the end of the movie is the, this, you know, air show going Great, into a yeah. montage of, you know, singing. But in, yeah, in that one, it seems like the the most spectacular event or at least the most globally visible spectacular event for some reason they maybe couldn't license the video but i doubt that <laughs> i don't know what's up there so this movie did spawn a seemingly possibly a sequel this year though yeah i saw that there's a sequel out this year i couldn't i couldn't tell if it was the same like, if it's an official sequel or if it's just using the format of my people my homeland in this case uh, yeah i don't think it's a direct sequel i think it's the same producer basically okay you know using the same team and the same uh uh yeah it just just kind of trying to reduplicate the formula yeah and it made a quite a bit of money considering it dropped this year uh i think it still cracked the top 20 all time yeah yeah well that's uh, like we earlier we talked about the challenges moving forward and one of them is you know a big one is covid that the u.s has performed so poorly in managing the virus, whereas China, you know, they had a tight, hard lockdown early on, and now they're on the other side of it, and theaters are opened up again. And so they're able to get, be back in business, and they're making films, and people are going back to theaters. And that's going to be, I, I think, a, a big challenge for our Hollywood in terms of catching up to what's what's been happening because they're they're plowing ahead with productions and we're now still stuck in this limbo phase well it's also like you said before it was a trend even before covid in terms of american theaters closing and chinese theaters opening at what 10 a day at, at this point i think the future of the blockbuster is almost exclusively chinese even you see warner brothers recently was like we're Switching entirely to HBO. HBO Max releasing, yeah. and you're not going to be able to do Matrix 5 after <laughs> releasing Matrix 4 on um, on HBO Max, whereas Wolf Warrior 3, which we've waited too long for, will, <laughs> will eventually come to movie theaters, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of unknowns uh, right now, but 
China may be the saving grace for some of those films that are going to roll out on HBO Max because as long as U.S.-China relations don't deteriorate <laughs> to the point where they can't be released in China, some of those blockbusters like Matrix 4, who knows, maybe they'll, they will do enough business in the Chinese market exclusive oh, um, sequels and such. And so it's really hard to say. At the same time, I find it, I know there's a lot of big pylon against HBO Max for their decision to release everything online only. And I, it's certainly a business decision, but at the same time, the interest of public health, unless oh, totally. we have a vaccination, yeah. right? You can't I just let Christopher Nolan keep, keep doing this. <laughs> I, what, 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 do I want to? Do I love Matrix Four so much? I'm going to risk my health to <laughs> see this film. You know, I mean, it was possible. I could have, I guess, but I mean, I didn't make that decision with any movie this year, and I just, I don't know. They tried it with Tenet, and it was such a failure that I, yeah. I think he ruined it for everybody. They're, they really are in a bind uh, between just tabling everything and waiting to a post-COVID world and then rolling everything out in theaters, We're doing the streaming model and seeing what kind of business they can do internationally with these films. But it, they really are in between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. If, uh, let's say, they do continue to film blockbusters, you know, like American ones and do you think at that point they cater more to a Chinese audience even more than, you know, a little bit more because those are the ones who get to see it in theaters? On the part of Hollywood producers? A little bit, right? Because if they're sure that they're, you know, Americans are not able to see this in, you know, IMAX cinema, but the Chinese are now your biggest consumer base in terms of like, the box office, that could change the calculus. It could. Um, I mean, there's certain for the last decade or more, Hollywood has already been doing almost everything they can to cater to the Chinese market, at least as, as, as their limited perspective allows them to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, I mean, you look at all of the big action franchise tentpole, you know, the, the, those fran like you look resident evil and transformers, X-Men. Uh, I mean, you go on Iron Man, you go on and on and every one of them, at least one or two films has featured, uh, leading Chinese actors, sometimes in just very small roles, but that's been a trend that started, you know, more than a decade ago. Um, that the changing of scripts so that there's nothing offensive to the Chinese market. I mean, the most recent example of this film with right Monster Hunt, where a joke, <laughs> I don't, intentionally, unintentionally, I, I don't know, uh, was taken to be offensive and hurt the feelings of the Chinese people, and they pulled it from theaters, and now. They have cut that out of the film. It's still unclear if China will re-release it with the new cut or it's just been killed. But they've been really walking on eggshells in terms of trying not to offend, you know, Chinese audiences' sentiments about various things. I mean, another example was the remake of Red Dawn about a decade mm -hmm. ago or 10 years ago where the, Korea. Right, the antagonists were all Chinese soldiers and when the studio got wind that this could be problematic, they digitally changed the, those Chinese soldiers to North Korean soldiers in post-production. So China, Hollywood's been trying to play, be a good boy by China's <laughs> rules and, you know, make, make films that don't touch any, you know, don't go into any red zones and they're not politically offensive. And the, the, I think that the real problem is a lot of the, people making decisions in Hollywood, studio heads, creative heads, they just don't know anything about China. They, they, they know everything that 
Variety and Hollywood Reporter have been publishing about China in the last couple of weeks or months or years. But there, you dig a little deeper beneath that, there's nothing there. I mean, I've talked to Hollywood producers kind of in the business of working with China. And you mentioned Zhou Enlai, you know, one, you know, China's number two political figure for decades. Never heard of him. Or you mentioned Lu Xun, the father of modern Chinese literature, whose stories have so inspired generations of readers. Never heard of them. Well, they've been trying to make like an Amazon show or something out of uh, the three-body problem. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just there's no and, – and, and there was another producer who asked me – this is going back a couple of years when there was this incredible, a rabid – activity of Chinese investment in Hollywood. And so you had, you know, legendary purchase by a Chinese company. You had all these Chinese studios like Alibaba opening up major offices in Los Angeles. There was just so much investment activity. And a producer said to me, like he said at UCLA, are your students rushing to your classes and thinking, wow, I got to get up on this. I got to learn about, you know, Chinese history and culture and film and get to be a, take advantage of this incredible, energy that's out there and all of the opportunities out there. I said, not, not at all. And actually, 90% <laughs> of my students are Chinese who take my classes. It's kind of preaching to the choir. But a lot of mainstream American students, it's as if they still haven't gotten the memo that China is a big part of the U.S.'s not just future, but it's our present. I mean, it's here. Right now, we're in precarious waters because of the trade war. But there's not a real sense that... I mean, I'm going to put it like this. Uh, everyone talks about the trade war and the cultural uh, and, the, and the economic disparity, but that cultural disparity for me is much more blatant. And you see that, I mean, all over. You, you, you go to China and you go to any university at random and you ask, ask a random kid on campus, who's Mark Twain, who's George Washington, who's Lincoln? You can you know, they'll, of course, be able to tell you who all these people are. You walk around a U.S. campus and grab random U.S. students with no background in China and ask them, you know, who is Zhou Enlai, who is, Ma, who is Mao Zedong, who is Sen? <laughs> Most of them are going to come up blank, uh, just yeah. completely empty. And so there's a real disparity in basic cultural knowledge of among Americans about China vis-a-vis China's educated class and their understanding of America. And so we're not on equal playing fields. And I think we have a lot of catch up work to do a lot of homework to do. And it seems like nobody's waking up to that. And so that's, I think, and that I, I see is like a lot of the tension now, the trade war and all of this. It's a direct result of a lack of understanding that we have too few people who know too little about China. And how do you have a productive relationship moving forward if you're, you know, got your eyes closed? This is this is something that, you know, in my work as a teacher and writer, I always feel like I'm up against and battling against. And I I'm, but I don't I don't know what the long term answer is to this. I wonder if so, some of the people leading this, um, the American industry towards, uh, you know, a better understanding of China will be. Chinese Americans in the future, because I think of someone like Justin Lin, whose films, like his, the Fast and Furious movies have blown up in China since he took over, I think. And Hollywood has, I think, noticed that. They've put him in charge of Aquaman. They've, you know, he's he's moved very far from Better Luck Tomorrow. Yes. Uh, I wonder if that sort of family understanding that, you know, 
the cultural understanding he might have grown up with contributed to his success globally. I think definitely. And I, and if, if anyone is ever going to crack the so-called code of making films that are going to work well in Hollywood, well in China, it's going to be these bicultural filmmakers who are bilingual. They know China. They know the U.S. People like Justin Lin, people like Dan Ang, like Chloe Zhao. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is kind of I think that's where the future lies in terms of if you want to make a sophisticated and nuanced film that can appeal to both markets and can combine American and Chinese actors in organic stories that work. You need somebody who is, I mean, one of, one of the problems with like Great Wall is Zhang Yimou doesn't speak English. And so how do you direct a character's lines when they're speaking a language you don't understand? I mean, the language is so much of the performance. And I mean, that, well, that film had a, many other <laughs> but I mean, It had Willem Dafoe though. So, you know, how could it not yeah. succeed? <laughs> I mean, Chloe Zhao is an incredible example, right? Or because until an American can make like a songs my brother taught me or a writer in China, I, like which I cannot see ever happen. I cannot see that happening at all. <laughs> like, they're they have the leg up. I think like for her to depict like American stories that honestly not many American directors have been doing is a real uh, cultural moment. I think or yeah. something yeah. to think about. She's really, uh, I don't want to exaggerate. I, I feel like in some ways she, she and people like her are the future of cinema. Um, yeah. and, and I think if we are going to really move things forward, it's going to be on her shoulders and people like her shoulders that everything will rest. So I'm very you know, curious what like she's going to do with something like a tentpole film like The Eternals. I mean, that's... Uh, I'm, I'm quite curious how someone with such a powerful individual signature style and very personal, intimate style in her films is going to navigate what kind of magic she might bring to something that usually is going to come up, become very formulaic. And I'm hoping she's able to not only shake up, shake up things in terms of independence cinema, but hopefully bring a really interesting energy to more commercial films as well. Thank you to Michael Berry for coming on the show. That wraps up this bonus episode. Our original music comes from Elliot Saltmarsh and Yehuda of Fist with a PH. And our art comes courtesy of Jay Castro. Follow us on Twitter at China Film Pod. Like the Upper on the Studio Facebook page. And if you can afford it, we would really appreciate it if you would contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Upper in the Studio. What's up, my people, Mike? We're trying to stage a national spectacle. We're trying to raise a flag. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to raise a flag, and it's turning out to be a lot more expensive than we anticipated. (laughs) We're trying to raise a flag, but the village won't get us their uh, medals. Help out, and if you feel like it, have some thoughts or suggestions, email us at uproarinthestudio, all one word, at gmail.com. We'll be back with another bonus episode on the 2020 film Leap next month. But before we leave you, we just want to share some wisdom from the chairman. To read too many books is harmful. We'll see you next month.